Chapter Twenty One of The Cave in the Mountain by Edward Ellis. Safety and Sleep. There was nothing especially noticeable in the site which the scout had selected for his campfire. His principal object had been secrecy, and he had obtained it beyond all peradventure. The place was more like a cavern than anything else, except that it was open at the top but it was walled in on the four sides, so there was barely room for the three to enter. As the scout explained, he was perfectly familiar with that section of the country, and he lost no time in hunting out the spot. He had his horse with him at the time the Apaches drove Mickey and Fred in among the rocks, and he stayed until pretty certain they could keep the Apaches at bay until dark, when he made his way to a level spot enclosed by rocks. There he kindled a fire, cooked some antelope, and left his mustang to graze and browse nearby while he returned to the assistance of his friends. "'Where did you shoot that uncleope, er, antelope?' asked Mickey. "'I didn't shoot him at all. He's the one you fetched down. You left enough for me, so I didn't run the risk of firing my gun when the varmints were so close by, so I sliced out a hunk or two from the carcass and fetched it along. You haven't got any of it about you?' Not enough for you folks. No more than three or four pounds. Be the powers, but you're right. That's enough to steer her stomach, as me sick aunt remarked after swallowing her twenty-third dumpling. At the moment the party walked in among the rocks, the smouldering embers of the campfire were plainly seen. They needed but a little stirring to break forth into flame again so as to light up the interior, which was about a dozen feet square, with a height of a dozen feet more or less. When the Irishman signified that something in the way of food would be acceptable, the scout produced it from among the leaves near at hand, and it was devoured with the heartiest kind of appetite. They had drunk all the water they needed, and the three assumed easy lounging attitudes, Mickey lighting his pipe and enjoying himself immensely. "'This is what I call comfortable,' he remarked. As me friend Patsy McFadden observed when the row began at the fair and the whacks came from every quarter, I enjoy it. It's refining. It's soothing. It makes a man glad that he's alive. What do you think of it? asked the scout, turning to Fred, who was reclining upon the heavy Apache blanket with the appearance of one who was upon the verge of sleep. I feel very grateful to you, said he, rousing up and I am more contented than I have been in a long time. But I'm afraid all the time that Lone Wolf or some of his braves might find out where we are. Sut smiled in a pitying way as he replied, Don't you suppose I'm old enough to fix all that? Haven't I learned enough of the patches and their devilments to keep em back? Well, I rather guess I have. As the night remained so warm that no comfort at all was derived from the fire, it was agreed that it should be left to burn out gradually. It had been kindled originally by Sut for the purpose of cooking his meat, and he had renewed it so that his friends might see exactly where they were and at the same time look into each other's faces. "'Let me ax you,' said Mickey, puffing away at his pipe, "'whether when we start for home we're going to take the pass which seems as full of the sparpines as me head is of grand ideas?' "'I can't be certain of that.' replied Sut thoughtfully. We can strike the prairie by going off here in another course, but it will take a long time, and the road is harder to travel. I like the pace a good deal the best, and unless the varmint seem too thick, we'll take it. 
if we could get a good fair start in the pass we could keep ahead of them all the way till we struck the open prairie when it would be illigant to sail away and watch them fallin behind like a snail trying to catch a hare the scout pointed to the lad and turning his head mickey saw that he was sound asleep the poor fellow was so wearied and worn out that he could not resist the approach of tired nature's sweet restorer which carried him off so speedily into the land of dreams i'm glad to absarve it said the irishman for the poor chap needs it he's too young to be in this sort of business and he couldn't prevent the circumstances and we must help him out of the scrape as best we can i'm with you responded the scout he's one of the most likely youngsters i've ever met and i'll risk a good deal to fetch him along i'm in hopes that we're pretty well out of the woods though we may have some trouble before we get clare lone wolf and the rest as soon as we get the critters to raid i suppose we can be off that's all and that won't take me long i'm used to finding horses that the varmints are fools enough to say are theirs one day last spring i were over near the staked plain all alone when i got cotched in one of them awful nor'easters and i never came so near freezing to death in all my life them sort of winds go right to the marrow of your bones and it takes you a week to thaw out while sir while i were trying to start a fire a couple of comanches managed to slip up and steal my mustang i didn't find it out till three or four hours arter and then i were mad i couldn't stand no such loss so i took the trail and started off on a deer trot after em wall sir i chased them infernal varmints close on to twenty miles fore i run em to earth then i found em down into a deep holler where i come nigh tumbling heels over head right in between em fore i knowed who they were you see it were a piece of the meanest kind of business on their part cause they each had a mustang and i hadn't any and they were leading mine i laid low for them varmints till night when i mounted my critter and struck off over the country leading their two beasts with me i spected they'd foller of course for the two animals that i captured were such beauties as you don't meet every day so i kept em on the go purty steady for two days and nights when i struck into the chaparral tethered all three horses tumbled over onto the ground and put in four hours of straight solid sleep such as makes a new man of a fella well sir would you believe it when i woke up and went to mount my hoss he wasn't there them same three skunks had managed to keep so close on to the trail that afore i woke they slipped up took all three of the animals and were miles away when i opened my eyes well you may scope me if i wasn't mad and i couldn't help laughing too to think how nice they had come it over me as the game had begun atween us i took the trail and followed it for a half a week you see them skunks didn't mean that i shouldn't get the best of em again they rode fast and kept it up as long as their horses could stand it by which time they had every reason to think they were a hundred miles ahead of me and so they went in for a good rest intending when they had got that to keep up their flight until they reached their village up near the headwaters of the canadian of course there wouldn't have been any show for me if i hadn't a had a streak of luck i know that country like a book 
and I were pretty certain of the trail them thieves meant to take, so I started to cut across and hit them off. I hadn't gone far when I come upon the camp of a Comanche war party numbering a hundred. I hadn't any trouble in picking out an animal that suited, and then you see I were all right, and for fear I might get off the track, I come back and took up the trail again, and I kept it so hot that when they went into camp, I weren't more than two miles away. I didn't want to come any closer, for if they'd found out I were so near, they wouldn't have given me any kind of a chance at all. I waited till it was dark, and there wasn't a bit of moon that night when I sneaked into camp and got their three animals again and headed for Port Severn. I made up my mind to keep the thing going without giving them the slightest chance to pull up. The weather had toned down so that it was comfortable to travel, and arter I got out of hearing of the camp, I just swung my hat and kicked and laughed to think how cheap them varmints would feel when they'd come to wake up in the morning and find out how nice the white man had got ahead of them. You see, it were just a question as to which of us were the smartest. We weren't going for each other's hair, though we'd done that any other time, but for each other's horses, and I'd stole theirs twice to their stealing mine once, and I still held them, so I had good reason to crow over them. Well, sir, I made up my mind that they weren't going to come any shenanigan over me, and I struck the shortest line for Fort Severn. I rode through that very pass in which you come so near getting caught, and in fact the place where I got the horses weren't ten miles from that big cave. I had plain sailing all the way into the fort, and everything went along well. I had only to ride on my critter when the others galloped along like so many dogs. You see, I meant business, and I kept a watch for them varmints all the time. When I stopped for food or rest, I made certain they weren't any war in sight, and during the three or four days that followed, I never slept an hour together. I managed to snatch a few minutes' slumber while riding my Mustang on a full gallop, but when I stopped to give the animals time to rest, I kept watch, for I felt as though it would break my heart to be outwitted again. I made the best kind of time, and my last camp was within a dozen miles of Fort Severn. I was pretty well used up by that time, and making sure that the varmints weren't anywhere within a day's ride, I put in a good two hours' sleep. Well, I never rightly understood it, added Sut with a sigh, and I'm always ashamed to tell it, but when I went out to mount my Mustang, the whole four were gone, and the moccasin tracks on the ground showed who had tuck em. I can't understand to this day how them varmints kept so close behind me, and how they were ready when the chance come into their way, but they were and they beat me as fairly as the thing was ever done in this world. Doesn't you try to follow them? No, I thought I might as well give up. I sneaked into the fort and tried to keep the thing from them, but I couldn't tell a straight story, and they found out how it was at last, and I don't suppose I'll ever hear the last of it. A short time afterward, the two laid down and slept. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 Two Old Acquaintances All three of the little party needed rest, and none of them opened their eyes until morning. 
as a simple precaution the scouts smothered the fire entirely by scraping the ashes over the embers not a ray of moonlight could reach them and they were wrapped in the most impenetrable darkness as might be expected sut simpson was the first to open his eyes and by the time the sun was up all three were stirring enough meat remained over from the feast of the night before to furnish them with a substantial breakfast and cool refreshing water was at hand for drink and ablution when the preliminaries had been completed sut went out to learn whether any of the apaches were threateningly near he wished too to prepare his horse for a ride to a point a dozen miles away close to the margin of the prairie where he intended to establish himself until he could procure the two animals that were needed by his companions he had not been gone ten minutes when he came back in great excitement my mustang is stole or may i be scooped and then he added a general wail them redskins is getting to be the greatest house thieves in the world i don't know what's to become of us if they're going to keep on in that way mickey laughed heartily for he recalled the narrative of the night before in the game for horseflesh it looked very much as if the Apaches could be Sut's tutors. "'Me I'd respectfully inquire where you got that creature in the first place. "'Why, well, bought him off the varmints. "'How much did you pay?' "'Well,' laughed Sut in turn, "'I haven't paid anything yet.' "'I suppose they've sent in their account till they're tired. "'Finding you doesn't pay any attention, they've come to take him back again.' are you sure that it was done by the indians asked fred a little frightened at learning that they'd been so close while he slept there ain't a bit of doubt i've looked the ground over and there's the trail as plain as the nose on your face how many two and they did it during the night no replied the scout displaying his wonderful woodcraft the varmints come yesterday afternoon just at dusk after i took supper and left how do you know that i'd be a fool if i couldn't tell by the look of a trail how long ago it were made it seemed impossible that such was the fact and yet young as was fred he had heard of such things and the scout spoke after the manner of one who meant what he said begorra but it's myself that has it exclaimed mickey with a sudden lighting up of the countenance they're the same two spalpeens that took your house down by the staked plain and then followed you up and did the same thing over again just as you was going into Fort Severn. But the scout shook his head. The varmints don't know much about pity, but that's too rough a thing even for a Comanche to repeat. I've a suspicion that Lone Wolf had a hand in that, and I'm going for him. Come along. And the indignant Sut strode out of the camp, followed by his friends. He was not the man to submit to such a loss, and they saw that he was in deadly earnest. He neither spoke nor looked behind him for the next quarter of an hour, nor were his friends able to tell what direction he was following, for he changed so often, winding in and out among the trees, that they could form no conjecture as to the general course taken. They saw that he was following a trail, for he continually looked down at the ground in front of him, and then glanced to the right and left, occasionally inclining his head as though he was listening for something which he expected to hear. He appeared to be altogether unconscious of the fact that he had companions at all, and they sought to imitate his stealthy cat-like movement without venturing to speak. After travelling the distance mentioned, and while they were moving along in the same cautious way, 
The scout suddenly wheeled on his knee and faced them. See here, he said. It won't do for you to travel any further. What's up? asked Mickey. Why, the trail's getting too hot. I ain't fur from them horses. Well, doesn't you want us to stand by and observe the style in which you are going to scoop em in? Simpson shook his head. You're both too green to try this kind of business. I never could get a chance at them varmints if I took you long. All you got to do is stay here till I get back. That won't be long. Suppose you don't get back at all, asked Fred anxiously. Then you needn't wait. But ain't it probable that some of the Apaches will visit us? The scout was quite confident that the contingency would not occur, but as long as they were in that part of the world, so long were they in danger of the Redskins. It was never prudent to lay aside habits of caution, but he did not believe they were liable to molestation at that time. He charged them to keep quiet and always on the alert, and to expect his return within a couple of hours, although he might be delayed until noon. They were not to feel any apprehension unless the entire day should pass without his coming. Still even that would be possible, he said, without implying anything more than that he had encountered unexpected difficulties in regaining his horse. They were still to wait for him until the morrow, and if he continued absent, they were at liberty to conclude that the time had come for him to pass in his checks, and they were to make the effort to reach home the best way they could. With this understanding, they separated. At the time Sut left his friends, the trail was exceedingly hot, as he expressed it, and he was confident that within the next half-hour he could force matters to an issue. The scout was of the opinion that a couple of Apaches had accidentally struck his trail, or happened directly upon his horse while he was grazing, and, without suspecting his ownership, had taken him away. The trail led toward the Apache camp, although by a winding course, and that was not far away. He was desirous of coming up with the marauders before they joined in with the others. In that case, he would consider himself fully equal to the task of getting even with them, but it was not likely that they would go into camp when they were so close to the main body. Shortly after, to his great surprise, he came upon his mustang tied by a long lariat to the limb of a tree and contentedly grazing upon the grass, which was quite abundant. There was not the sign of an Indian visible. Scoot me if that ain't a purty way to manage things, he exclaimed, astonished at the shape the matter had taken. Them varmints couldn't have known that Sut Simpson owned that hoss, so they'd have tied him up tighter than that and they'd had somebody down here to watch him, but they were a couple of greenies. That's mighty certain. It's a wonder they didn't fetch out some of their mustangs and leave them where I could lay my hands on to them. But I rather think I've got my own hoss this time, as easy as a chap need to expect to get anything in this world. There was something so curious in the fact of the horse being left alone that Sut was a little suspicious and decided to reconnoitre thoroughly before venturing further. He was partly hidden behind a large tree, and had been so cautious and noiseless in his movements that his mustang, which was one of the quickest to detect the approach of any one, was unaware of his presence. Sut was on the point of going forward when a movement in the wood on the other side of where the animal was grazing attracted his attention, and he paused. At the same instant his steed lifted his head, 
There could be no doubt as to the cause, for within the next minute the figure of an Indian stepped forward toward the animal, and proceeded to examine him with a care and minuteness which showed that he expected to identify his ownership. The eyes of Simpson lit up, and an expression of exultation crossed his countenance, not merely because the redskin before him was in his power, but because he recognized him as no one else but Lone Wolf, the Apache war chief. It looked as if the horse thieves had approached the vicinity of camp with their plunder, and then, securing him to the branch of the tree, had gone in and reported what they had done. Lone Wolf, suspecting perhaps that it was the property of his enemy Sut Simpson, had stolen out quietly and alone to satisfy himself. He knew all the trademarks of the hunter so well that he could not be deceived. This was the theory which instantly occurred to Sut, who muttered to himself, "'Oh, it's mine, and I'm here, though you don't think it, and we'll soon shake hands over it. The scout speedily assured himself that Lone Wolf was alone, that he had no half-dozen retainers who would immediately precipitate themselves upon him the instant a row should begin. Lone Wolf had no rifle with him, but carried his huge knife at his girdle, one of the most formidable instruments ever seen. As he walked slowly about the Mustang, scrutinizing him very carefully, he brought himself within a yard or two of where Sut Simpson crouched. The latter waited until he was the nearest when he stepped forward with his drawn knife in hand, and placing himself directly in front of the astounded war chief, said, "'Now, Lone Wolf, we'll make our account square.'" End of Chapter 22 Chapter 23 Border Chivalry As the scout uttered these words, the Apache whirled like lightning and drew his knife. His swarthy painted face glowed with passion, and his black eyes twinkled with a deadly light. Seeing that he had no weapon but the knife, Sut Simpson, with a certain rude chivalry that did him credit, left his rifle leaning against the tree, while he advanced with a weapon corresponding to that of his enemy, so that both stood upon the same footing. "'Lone Wolf is glad to meet the white dog that he has hunted so long,' said the chieftain, speaking English like a native. With a sardonic grin, Sut replied, "'It's played out, old Pockerhead,' alluding to the chieftain's pitted face. "'I'm just as mad at you as I can be without you getting up any fancy didos to upset my nerves. I've come for you this time, and the best thing you can do is to proceed to business.' They were facing each other with drawn knives almost toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and each waiting for the other to lead off. It would have been hard to tell which stood the best chance of winning. Lone Wolf suddenly sprang forward like a panther and made a vicious lunge with his knife, Sut easily avoiding it by leaping back when in turn he made a similar attempt upon his adversary, who escaped in precisely the same manner. But the scout noticed an unaccountable thing. Lone Wolf had dropped his knife. True, he picked it up like a flash and put himself on guard. But how it was that a veteran like him could have made such a slip was totally unexplainable to his foe. But the explanation came in the next moment when the chief, without removing his eyes from those of the white man, cautiously changed the knife to his left hand. His right arm was injured in some way, so that it was unreliable. He had shown this, first by dropping the weapon while attempting to use it, 
and he showed it again by shifting it to his left hand, thus placing himself at a frightful disadvantage. Sut saw no wound, yet there could be no doubt of the truth, and his feelings changed on the instant. He felt himself the meanest of men to attempt to overcome an almost helpless foe. "'Lone wolf,' said he, still looking him straight in the eyes, "'why don't you hold your knife in the hand that you generally do?' "'Lone wolf can slay the dog of a white man with which hand he may choose.' "'You haven't been able to do it with both hands during all these years that you've been trying when you've had your whole tribe to help you. But don't make a fool of yourself, Lone Wolf. Are your right arm hurt?' "'Lone Wolf will fight the white dog with his strong arm.' "'No, you don't. That's played out,' growled the scout, shoving his knife back in his girdle. I don't love you any more'n I love the devil, and I felt happy to think that I had got a chance at last to get square with you. But when I lift the top knot a lone wolf and slide him under, he's got to have the same chance that I have. I don't believe you'd act that way toward me, when then you're a redskin, and that makes the difference. Lone wolf, we'll adjourn the fight till you're yourself again and deliberately turning away, the scout vaulted upon the back of the mustang, cutting the lariat that held him by a sweep of the knife. "'I suppose you'll own I got some claim on this beast. So good-bye.' And without turning to look at him again, he rode deliberately away. The Apache stood like a statue, staring at him until he was hidden from view by the intervening trees. Then he turned and walked slowly in the opposite direction no doubt with strange thoughts in his brain. "'I don't know how that scamp will take it,' muttered Sut as he rode along. "'He's one of the ugliest dogs that ever wore a painted face, and if he could catch me with a broken arm or head, he wouldn't want anything better than to chop me up into mincemeat. But as I told the old varmint himself, he's an engine, and I ain't, and that's what's the matter.' The wood was too dense and the ground too uneven to permit him to ride at a faster gait than a walk, but long before the appointed hour was up he rejoined his friends, who were as surprised as pleased at his prompt reappearance. "'But where are the beasts that you promised to furnish us?' inquired Mickey, who had very little relish for the prospect of walking any portion of the distance homeward. "'That's what I'll have for you before the sun goes down,' was the confident reply. I'll get you one house anyway, which maybe is just as good as two, for the weight of the yunker don't make no difference, and we can get along with one beast better than two. I submit to your superior judgment, said the Irishman deferentially, and would suggest that the sooner the same quadruped is procured, the better all round. I hope the thing won't be delayed, as my aunt observed when the judge sentenced her husband to be hung. Sud explained that his plan was to ride some distance further to a spot which he had in mind, where they would be safer against being trailed. There, consequently, they could wait with more security while he went for the much-needed horse. Time was precious, and no one realized it more than Sut Simpson. He turned the head of the Mustang toward the left, and after he had started, leaped to the ground and walked ahead, acting the part of a guide for the horse, as well as for his friends. The surface over which they journeyed was of the roughest nature, 
the fact of it was the scout was working the party out toward the open prairie without availing himself of the pass an undertaking which would have been almost impossible to anyone else at the same time by picking his way over the rocky surface and using all means possible to conceal their trail he hoped to baffle any pursuit that might be attempted lone wolf was not the redskin to allow such a formidable enemy as sut simpson to walk away unmolested even though he had received an unexpected piece of magnanimity at his hands he had learned that it was he who had played such havoc among his warriors the day before who had deceived them by cunningly uttered signals and had drawn away the redskins sufficiently to permit his two intended victims to walk out of his clutches it had been a series of unparalleled exploits the results of which would have exasperated the mildest tempered indian ever known these thoughts were constantly in the mind of the scout as he picked out the path for his equine and human companions he took unusual pains for a great deal depended upon his success in hiding the trail as much as possible perhaps it is not correct to say that the apaches could be thrown entirely off the scent if they should set themselves to work to run the fugitives under cover none knew this better than sut himself but he knew also that the thing could be partially done and a partial success could be made a perfect one that is by adopting all the artifices at his command the work of trailing could be rendered so difficult that it would be greatly delayed so that it would require hours for the apaches to unearth the hiding place and sut meant to accomplish his self-imposed task during those few hours so as to rejoin his friends and resume their flight before the sharp-witted pursuers could overhaul them the journey therefore was made one of the most difficult imaginable the mustang was unshod and yet he clambered up steep places and over rocks and through gravelly gullies where the ordinary horse would have been powerless the animal seemed to enter into the spirit of the occasion and his performances again and again excited the wonder and admiration of mickey and fred the creature had undergone the severest kind of training at the hands of an unsurpassed veteran of the frontier this laborious journeying continued for a couple of hours during which it seemed to the man and lad that they passed over several miles of the roughest travelling they had ever witnessed the mustang had fallen several times but he sprang up again like a dog and showed no signs of injury or fatigue finally sut made a halt just as mickey was on the point of protesting and turning about so as to face his companions he smiled in his peculiar way as he spoke you've stood it pretty well for greenhorns now i'm going to give you a good rest do you mind to go into camp for a week or a month or until the warm season is over i'm going to leave you here while i go for some horse flesh and it'll take longer time than before but the irishman insisted that he should be allowed to accompany the scout upon this dangerous expedition for the reason that you're going to pick out this animal for me he added who do i know but what you'll pick out some ring-boned spieven critter that trots sideways and is blind in both eyes fred who dreaded the long spell of dreary waiting which seemed before him asked that he might make one of the company but sut would not consent and he objected to both he finally compromised by agreeing to take the irishman but insisted that the lad should stay behind with his mustang a younger like you couldn't do us a bit of good added sut by way of explanation 
and like as not you'd get us into the worst kind of difficulty. Better stay where you be, rest, and be ready to mount your new animal soon as we're back and scoot away for New Boston. How soon will you be back? he asked, feeling that he ought to make no objection to the decision. The forenoon was about half gone, and the scout looked up at the sky, removed his coonskin cap, and thoughtfully wrinkled his brows as though he were solving some important mental problem. You may scoop me, Yunker, but that's a mighty hard thing to tell. Now, I got back with my own animal a good deal sooner than I expected, but that same thing ain't like that to happen again. More likely it'll be the other way, and we may be gone all day, perhaps all night. And what am I to do with all that time? Wait. That'll be easy enough, after such a rough tramp as I've given you. But suppose some of the Indians come here. I haven't got any gun or pistol, so what shall I do? The hoss there lets you know when any of the varmints come sneaking round, and he'll do it too before they know where you be, so you'll have time to dig out. I ain't much in the way of using a knife, added the scout. I depends on me gun for long range, and when I gets into close quarters, I throw this here, tapping the handle of his knife, round careless-like. But I got a little plaything for you that stood me well once or twice, and if it's any hip to you, why, you're welcome to it. It was given to me by an officer down at Fort Massachusetts. As he spoke, the scout drew a small revolver, beautifully mounted and ornamented with silver, which he handed to the lad, who, as may be supposed, was delighted with the weapon. "'Just the thing exactly,' he said, as he turned it over in his hand. "'There are five barrels, and every one's loaded,' added the scout. "'The pill which it gives a redskin ain't very big, but it's sure, and it'll hunt for him a good ways off, so the dog is apt to bite better than you expect.' Sut told him that he expected to return by nightfall, and possibly before, but they might be kept away until morning. Under any circumstances, whether successful or not, they would be back within twenty-four hours, for they could better afford to wait and repeat the attempt than to stay away longer than that. The reason for this decision was that if any of the Apaches should attempt to trail them, and there was every reason to believe that they would, they would not need more than twenty-four hours to track them to this hiding place. It was especially necessary that a collision with them should be avoided as long as possible, for the whites had everything to gain by such a course. As time was valuable, Sut did not delay the departure, and as he and Mickey gave the lad a cheery good-bye, they turned off to the right, and a minute later disappeared from view. "'Here I am alone again,' he said to himself, excepting the horse, "'and I've got a loaded revolver.' Sut don't think those Apaches can get here before tomorrow morning, and he knows more than I do about it, so I hope he's right. We've got thus far on our way home, and it would be a pity if we should fail. When he looked around, he saw nothing in the place or surroundings which would have commended it to him. There was water in the shape of a trickling stream, and that was plenty everywhere, but there was scarcely a spear of grass visible. The vegetation was stunted and unthrifty in appearance. There were stones and rocks everywhere, with nothing that could serve as a shelter in case of storm. He searched for a considerable distance around, but was unable to find even a shelving rock beneath which he might creep and gather himself up if one of those terrific tempests peculiar to this region should happen to strike him. 
nor did there seem to be any suitable refuge if the Apaches should attack him before he could retreat. He might crouch down behind some of the boulders and rocks, but the makeup of the surface around him was so similar that three redskins could surround him with perfect ease without any danger to themselves. Fred therefore made up his mind that he was in about as uncomfortable a situation as a fugitive could well be. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 Night Visitors As young Munson expected to remain where he was for the rest of the day and perhaps through the succeeding night, and knew that he was in great danger, he made it his business to acquaint himself thoroughly with his position and with all the approaches thereto. The first natural supposition was that the Apaches, in following the fugitives to the spot, would, from the force of circumstances, keep to the trail, that being their only guide. This trail, for the last two hundred yards, led up a slope to where he was stationed upon what might have been called a landing in the ascent of the mountain. At the bottom of this two hundred yards or so was an irregular plateau, beyond which the trail was lost. "'If the Apaches should show themselves before dark,' he concluded, as he looked over the ground, "'this is where they will be seen, and that's the spot I must watch so long as I can see it.' Fred was able to hide himself from view for the time being, but there was no way in which he could conceal the horse. He was sure to be the first object that would attract the eye of the redskins from below, revealing to them the precise position of the fugitives. This reflection disturbed the lad a good deal, until he succeeded in convincing himself that, after all, it was fortunate that it was so. The redskins, detecting the mustang among the rocks, would believe that the three whites were there on the defensive. No matter if their force were a half-dozen times as great, they would make the attack with a great deal of caution, and would probably maneuver around until dark in the expectation of a desperate fight all of which Fred hoped would give him a good chance of stealing out and escaping them. This, as a matter of course, was based upon the idea that Sut Simpson, the veteran scout, had committed a serious error in believing that the pursuit would be slow, and such a mistake he had indeed made, as the lad discovered in due time. The afternoon wore slowly away, and the sunset was close at hand when Fred was lying upon his face peering over the upper edge of a rock at the plateau below. The fact of it was, his eyes had been roaming over the same place so long that the stare had become a dreary, aimless one. He was suddenly aroused, however, to the most intense attention by the discovery of an Apache warrior who drifted very serenely into the field of vision as if he were part of a moving panorama upon which the lad was gazing. The boy had been waiting so long for his appearance that he uttered an exclamation and half rose to his feet in his excitement, but he quickly settled back again, and with an interest which it would be hard to describe, watched every movement of the redskin as the tiger watches the approach of its victim. The Indians stalked up the other side of the plateau, walking slowly, looking right and left, in front and rear, and down at the ground his manner showing that he was engaged in trailing the party, using all the care and skill of which he was the master. Reaching the middle of the plateau, he stopped, looked about, and made a gesture to someone behind him. 
A moment later a second Indian appeared, and then a third, the trio meeting near the center of the irregular plot where they immediately began a conversation. Each of the three was liberal with his gestures, and now and then Fred could catch the sound of their voices. What it was that could so deeply interest them at such a time he was at a loss to conjecture, but there could be no doubt that it related to the party they were pursuing. "'That must be all there are of them,' he reflected, after several minutes had passed, without any other Apaches becoming visible. "'But it seems to me it is a small force to chase us with. I've always understood that the Indians wanted to double the number of their enemies whenever they are going to attack them, but I suppose they've got some plan that I can't understand.' They had been talking but a short time when Fred understood from their actions that they had detected the mustang above them on the mountainside. They looked up several times and pointed and gesticulated in the same earnest fashion. It suddenly occurred to the lad that he might play a good point on the redskins, with the idea of delaying any offensive movement they might have under discussion. Pointing his revolver over the rock in front of him, he pulled the trigger. The report was as sharp and loud almost as that of a rifle, but the parties against whom it was aimed were in no more danger than if they had been in the city of Newark. The report had no sooner reached the ears of the Apaches than they scattered as wildly as if they had heard the whiz of a dozen bullets by their faces. Fred chuckled over the success of his ruse, and made sure to keep himself hid from view. That will make them think that we're holding a sharp lookout for them, and they'll be careful before they make an attack upon us. It seemed strange to him that the Apaches, who must know of the presence of Sut Simpson, who was equal to half a dozen men in such a situation, should have sent forward only three of their warriors to trail him. It may be, he thought after a while, that these men know how to follow a trail faster than the others, and they have gone on ahead while the others are coming after them. I should think Lone Wolf would do anything in the world to catch Sut, who has done him so much injury. Night was drawing on apace, darkness being due in less than an hour. Fred was naturally perplexed and alarmed, for he could not help feeling that he was in a most perilous position regarding which he should have had more advice from the scout before his departure. The only thing that seemed prudent for him to do was to wait until dark, and then quietly steal out and shift his position. It looked very much as if he could take care of himself for the night, at least, but he did not see how he could take care of the Mustang, which had already changed hands so often, and which was so necessary to their safety. Sut said he expected to be home by dark, and I wish he'd come, was the thought that passed through his mind over and over again as he looked into the gathering darkness and listened for the sounds of his friends. But the stillness remained unbroken, and the shadows deepened until he saw that the night was fully come, and he could move about without danger of being fired upon from a distance. The moon was late in rising, so that the gloom was deep enough to hide one person from another when the distance was extremely slight. Although aware of this, Fred was afraid of some flank movement upon the part of the Apaches before he could get out of their reach. The suspicion that there were two men besides would make the Redskins very cautious in their movements, but a little maneuvering on their part might reveal the truth, in which case the situation of the lad would be critical in the extreme. 
Fred had nerved himself to the task of stealing around the corner of a large rock and off into the darkness, when he was startled by a quick sudden stamp of the horse. There might have been nothing in this, but recalling what the scout had said about the skill of the animal as a sentinel, he had no doubt but that it meant that he had scented danger and that the redskins were close at hand. Scarcely pausing to reflect upon the advisability of the step, the lad began crawling in the direction of the animal not more than twenty feet away. Before he had passed half the distance, he was certain that a redskin was at some deviltry, for the horse stamped and snorted and showed such excitement that Fred forgot his own danger, and springing to his feet ran rapidly toward the animal. Just as he reached him, he saw that an Indian had him by the bridle and was trying to draw him along, the mustang resisting but still yielding a step at a time. In a short time, if the thief was not disturbed, he would have gotten him beyond the possibility of rescue, he seemingly more anxious to secure the steed than the scalp of its owner. With never a thought of the consequences, Fred raised his revolver and blazed away with both barrels, aiming as best he could straight at the marauding Apache, who, with a howl of rage and terror, dropped the bridle of the mustang and bounded away among the rocks. There! I guess when you want to borrow a horse again you'll ask the owner." The lad was reminded of his imprudence by the flash of a rifle almost in his face and the whiz of the bullet which grazed his cheek, but he still had two loaded chambers in his revolver, and he wheeled for the purpose of sending one of them at least into the warrior that had made an attempt upon his life. At this critical juncture the mustang displayed an intelligence that was wonderful. The Apache, who was stealing upon him, was near the steed which without any preliminary warning, let out both his heels, knocking the unsuspecting wretch fully a dozen feet, and stretching him badly wounded upon the ground. "'I wonder how many more there are!' exclaimed the lad, looking about him and expecting to see others rushing forward from the gloom. But the repulse for the time being was effectual, and the way was clear. "'I guess I'd better get out of here,' was the thought of Fred for it ain't likely they'll leave me alone very long when they've found out that I'm the only one left." With revolver in hand, he moved hurriedly backward among the rocks, and after going a few rods, halted and looked for his pursuers whom he believed to be close behind him. There was something coming, but a moment's listening satisfied him that it was his mustang which seemed to comprehend the extingency fully as well as he did himself. "'I don't know about that,' he reflected. They can follow him better than they can me, and he can't sneak along like I can. If they catch him, they'll be pretty sure to catch me." He started to flee, not from the Indians only, but from the Mustang as well. But the speed of the latter was greater than his own, and after several attempts to dodge him, he gave it up. "'If you can travel so well,' reflected Fred, "'you might as well carry me on your back.' Saying this, he leaped upon the animal's back and gave him free rein. The animal was going it on his own hook, and he plunged and labored along for some minutes longer over the rockiest sort of surface, until he halted of his own accord. The instant he did so, Fred leaped to the ground, paused, and listened for his pursuers. Nothing but the hurried breathing of the mustang could be heard. The latter held his head well up with his ears thrown forward in the attitude of attention, but minute after minute passed and the stillness remained unbroken. It looked indeed as if the fugitive horse and boy had found rest for the time, and so long as the darkness continued there was no necessity for further flight. 
End of chapter 24